Good morning. My name is Danielle Morrow, and I'm a member here at Redemption. And I will be reading today's scripture passage from Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Danielle. If you would, let's, let's pray together now. Would you pray with me as we look to God's word? Father, we pray you would quiet our hearts now, prepare us to hear from your word, give us wisdom and even spiritual light with which we can see more clearly what it is you have for us here and, and even the specific ways you hope that it would change and shape and transform our lives to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Pray together in his name, amen. Well, last spring, my wife Carrie and I took a trip to Washington, D.C., and there was a really beautiful, sunny day where we walked to the Capitol building, and we sort of sat there on the lawn in the grass by this really huge tree. And as I sat by this clearly very old tree, so close to such an iconic and historic site, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, I bet this tree's been through a lot. Uh, Without a doubt, it was there back on January 6, 2021, when those crowds stormed the Capitol. It was almost certainly there back on September 11th, uh, when that plane crashed into the Pentagon. Uh, I, I bet it was even there when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech not far from there on the mall. Uh, Who knows, it may have even been there when our troops were fighting Nazis overseas in Europe, World War II, and I have to tell you, I'm no tree expert. But part of me wonders if that tree was there during the Civil War. Um, It seems at least possible. The point is this, life has raged on around this tree and in the historic government building just behind it, and yet, all the while, there it was just being a tree, and there it still sits today as a big, beautiful tree. There's something profound, I think, about the spiritual picture here. The picture here is one of stability, of perseverance, of longevity. In some ways, as God's people, we should really aspire to be like this tree, Uh, not blown or tossed by the winds of our day, but rooted strong, immovable even, over long periods of time. You'll notice this psalm begins with two questions which really set the trajectory for the rest of the passage. Uh, So it's really important for us to consider what question is the psalmist really after in Psalm 15? Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. He writes, "'O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent?' 
who shall dwell on your holy hill. Now, until we are sure what he means by that, we are really not quite ready to make sense of this psalm. And so first, the idea of sojourning in God's tent is a reference to the tabernacle. Uh, During King David's life in particular, Israel did not have a permanent temple building made of stone. Instead, ever since their days in the wilderness, God dwelt among his people in, in a tent called the tabernacle. And this tabernacle was basically a primitive mobile prototype of what the temple would eventually go on to be. Similar to the temple, this tent was thought to be the only place on earth where God actually dwelt among his people, and therefore the inside of this tent was considered a sacred, holy place. Only a very select few people ever got to enter into it, and even then only under very strict sets of regulations No one actually belonged in this tent. And this is kind of the point. No one is at home in this tent but God himself. For anyone who did get to enter it, it was as if they were sort of sojourning in a place where they did not belong. And so the question in view here really is, who will get to have that privilege? Uh, Who gets to enter the inside of God's sacred space where only he deserves to dwell? In in other words, who will enjoy this kind of intimate spiritual proximity with this glorious God of heaven? The second question is very similar. O Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, To understand what David means here by God's holy hill, if you would just turn back with me to chapter 2, Psalm 2, not far behind. In Psalm 2, if you look with me at verse 26, we read God's voice here in this psalm. And in Psalm 2 and verse 6, God is saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, he says, my holy hill. Zion is the holy hill. Last week I explained that Zion is basically God's heavenly city. It's the heavenly version of the city of Jerusalem. It's far more otherworldly. It's far more transcendent. You can't just walk into it on this earth. Last week in Psalm 14, the psalmist even prayed that salvation would come out of Zion. Remember, presumably because there was nowhere on earth that it could actually come from. God looked down on on the earth from the heavens and there was none who does good. In other words, yet again, the question David is after here is basically, who will get to have this privilege? Who will get to dwell secure in your holy city or heavenly city, O God? In other words, who will get to enjoy the kind of spiritual safety that can only come when God himself is our fortress and he is our city that we dwell in? Now, what's interesting about these questions is that you might just assume the answer would be, well, everyone, right? Um, Especially in the original audience, for the original nation of Israel whom this was written for, the idea of the Old Testament is kind of that all of Israel would have this eternal spiritual covenant relationship with God. There is chosen nation, but clearly for David, this is not just as simple as saying, yeah, every Israelite who's part of those sacrifices we make in that tent will be sojourning with God in his tent in this way. It's not that clear. It doesn't work that way. According to David, not every citizen of Israel who might enjoy earthly peace and prosperity here and now would not necessarily go on to dwell with God on his holy hill. 
in this way. In other words, in the end, we will see not everyone who claimed to walk with God and to know him intimately actually was walking with God and actually knew him intimately. So the real question we're after in this psalm is basically, how can we tell the difference here? How, uh, whose life, rather, actually pleases the Lord? And, and how do we know that now? As you keep reading this psalm, frankly, I have to tell you, it's not very hard to figure it out. <laughs> Thankfully, some passages are just really easy to understand. Uh, to answer his own question, David paints a picture of what can only be described as a holy life. He basically says, here's the kind of earthly life that actually pleases the God of heaven. And then at the end of the psalm, he says very clearly, if you look with me, the last line, he who does these things shall never be moved. In other words, they are the ones who will sojourn with God in his tent. They are the ones who will dwell secure in his holy hill. And so right away, we can see very plainly the answer to this question, and really the claim of this passage, is that those who live godly lives will not be moved. They will never be moved. In other words, if you want to know whose life really pleases God, if you want to know who will dwell in his tent and on his holy hill someday, then don't just observe their worship habits here and now. Uh, don't just look at their spiritual resumes here and now. Don't just listen even to what they say about God. Look instead, the psalmist is saying, at the spiritual quality of their everyday lives over an extended period of time. But before we keep going here, I think it's really important for me to just acknowledge, um, I am about to preach a sermon on living a holy life as if it really, really matters that we do. And if you're pretty sharp, you might be thinking, well, wait a second, I was here last week. <laughs> and you said, you just told us, God looks down from heaven on all the earth and there is none who does good, not even one. It might sound like I'm almost talking out of both sides of my mouth here. And frankly, as you read Psalm 14 and then you carry on to Psalm 50, I just think this tension, it's, it's unavoidable. I'm not doing that, okay? That's here in your Bible for you to untangle. And so we need to think really carefully so we don't make a real mess of this psalm. Uh, because frankly, it's, it's very possible to do that. And in particular, there are two cliffs I think we need to avoid. Uh, the first cliff is the cliff that I would call Christless moralism. This is pretty simple. Uh, we read the description of a holy life that pleases God. We talk about how we should live and how we shouldn't live this morning, and then we walk away thinking, got it, will do. No mention of Christ. No need for his grace or sustaining mercy, just better behavior. And that will result almost certainly in one of two things. We will either try to go live in this way in and of ourselves by our strength, we will fail miserably at it, and we will hate ourselves as a result. Or uh, we might actually be able to convince ourselves, you know what, I'm actually kind of good at this. I can do this. We'll become arrogant. We'll become self-righteous, and we will not live a holy life that pleases the Lord. We will not dwell secure on his holy hill. That's the first cliff I think we need to avoid this morning. There is another cliff, 
though, to avoid as well. And I would call that cliff Christian moral apathy. Eh. Right? As soon as I start to read this and start talking about living a holy life as if it matters, some of your theological radars might trip off here. You might say, wait a minute, Danny, are you saying that the way we please God is by living a holy life? We're getting dangerously close to that here. And it sounds to me like works-based righteousness. You know we are justified by faith and not by works. Danny, you know that? I do. Very passionate about that doctrine myself. It's just not what this passage is about. We do need to avoid the first cliff. That's absolutely true. But let's not fall off this other one as a result of trying to avoid it. I want to prepare you. Your instincts today may be to say, look, no one, none of us can actually live this way. So the best way to make sense of this psalm is to say, thank God Jesus did, and that's it. The only application of this passage for us, be thankful for Jesus and go. It's important for us to realize, I think, as essential as the doctrines of salvation are, not every passage is meant to tell us how to be saved. Uh, and this one in particular is, is certainly not. Uh, church, there is no way around it. This psalm is about living a holy life. It just is. And if we walk away from the sermon today without thinking, at the very least, it really, really matters how I live my life, I'm afraid I would have probably failed at preaching Psalm 15. And so here I think instead is a way we can forge a path in the right direction with Psalm 15. Uh, rather than just saying, well, this is the kind of life that pleases God, go do it. Or saying, well, no one can actually do it, so don't really worry about it. Here's what I think our takeaway needs to be. Here's what we need to hear today, church. We can Live the kind of life that David is describing in this psalm. We can. It is important. It is urgent even that we do by faith in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the words we read here. This psalm is a description of his life more than anything else, and, and the key for us actually living that life, which we can and we must, and it matters, is to tap in to his power. As Paul says, we need to tap into the kind of righteousness that comes not by the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll talk about Psalm 15 now. With all that in mind, for the rest of our time, I'm simply going to walk through verses 2 to 5 here, and then preaching this psalm as if it's a corporate prayer, which it is, we are going to ask the Lord Jesus this morning, Lord, help us to live godly lives that are marked by, I want to prepare you, six things, okay? This is one of my last sermons I'm going to preach for a while, so I felt like I really had to go for it today, okay? <laughs> six things. We'll discuss and apply each of them briefly. Uh, First, Lord, help us to live godly lives marked by justice. The word justice is closely related to the word righteousness. It refers quite simply to doing what is good and right rather than what is evil and wrong. It also includes this idea of setting right what has been made wrong 
by sin. In the words of Psalm 15, I think this looks like walking blamelessly, doing what is right, doing no evil to our neighbors. And so I want us just to consider the conversations that we have both with our neighbors and about our neighbors. When we hear a neighbor or a coworker or, or a fellow parent at one of our kids' schools clearly slandering someone who we know or unfairly treating them in some way, how do we tend to respond to that? When we see someone in one of these settings kind of bending the rules, blurring the lines, excluding or rejecting a certain group of people for sinful reasons, what do we typically think to do? Do we walk blamelessly? Do we do right by these other people who are in view here? Are we willing to say, I'm sorry, but that's not sitting right with me. I don't think we should, we should talk or, or move in that direction. Or do we kind of conveniently avoid weighing in any judgments? Uh, do we maybe even join in in the conversation as evil is done to our neighbors? Does it really matter to us that all of our neighbors are justly and fairly treated? For those who live lives that please the Lord, for those who dwell and will dwell in his tent, it, it really does matter. But e each one of these points, what I want to do is just briefly consider, okay, but how do we live this way by faith in Christ and not by our own strength. Okay, first, uh, to seek justice in the way that Christ seeks justice will mean that we are not actually entitled to always getting it. Sometimes when you seek justice in this way, people will hate it. They will nail you to a cross. So we should be able to avoid this kind of smug spirit of indignation and superiority as we work towards justice. Let's expect that justice may not always be served in the way that it should, at least here and now. Let's walk blamelessly and do no evil to our neighbors even still. At the very least, I think pursuing justice by faith looks like pursuing justice with humility. It looks like not putting ourselves forward as the ultimate standard of what is good and what is right, but patiently pointing others to Christ and to the goodness of his word. Lord, help us to live holy lives that are marked by justice. Next, Lord, help us to live godly lives that are marked by inner integrity. This one's really interesting. Uh, those who will dwell with God in his tent and on his holy hill, they speak truth in their hearts. And now it's, it's interesting, I, I do think this is meant to be set in direct contrast to what we read last week about what the fool says in his heart, which is namely that there is no God. That's just not true. <laughs> there is a holy God who is judge over all. Every fool knows this. In Romans 1, Paul even says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they, Paul says, which is, he's referring to the entire Gentile world, every person in the human race who doesn't have access even to God's word, he says they are without excuse. It is in the best interest of sinful fools for there to be no God, so that we can go on living the foolish, sinful ways that we want without fear of judgment. And so as a result, what we do as fools is we speak lies in our hearts. 
try and help ourselves feel more settled about that arrangement. This is not so with those who dwell, who will dwell in God's tent. Church, what we say to ourselves silently in our hearts is one of the most important aspects of our spiritual lives and our overall spiritual health. It may be the most important. And it's important that we can speak truth to ourselves, particularly when there's no one else to do it. Uh, We need to be able to say, you know, I am proud in this specific way. And and that is actually what's motivating my actions right now. Uh, We we need to be able to say, you know, I I think my bitterness actually has grown to the extent to where now it's sin. and, And I am actually disobeying God by not extending grace and mercy to this person who's hurt me. We need to say in our hearts, I really did make a commitment here. And the reason I'm not following through is not because of all the external circumstances I keep pointing to. It's because I'm running. It's because I'm scared. And I actually need to stop doing that. Are you able to to have this kind of frank inner dialogue in your heart on a regular basis? Or do we tend to mostly just agree with just about everything we feel in our hearts? Because if so, I think the clear evidence in scriptures there may be some lying going on there. We may not be entirely truthful, even with ourselves. So let's speak truth to ourselves when there's no one else to speak it. But, but again, how do we live this way by faith in Christ and not just by our own strength? Well, first, I think we have to recognize that our inner spiritual life is actually a spiritual matter. God is active and working there He's trying to do some stuff in us. And we are not entitled to think or say whatever we want as long as we say it in our hearts. God rules and reigns there too. So I think this looks like not just trusting in our own hearts or leaning on our own understanding. It looks like having a healthy sense of skepticism of our own inner feelings and instincts because we know the effect of sin on our lives. It looks like living together in the light of gospel fellowship where we can allow specific people to actually you know, speak into what we do say and what we do and what that might be revealing about the content of our hearts. But the truth is we will never do any of that None of it, unless we are thoroughly convinced that when we walk in the light, God himself will lavish us with his grace and his mercy. This is where faith in Christ must enter. We must believe. We can speak the truth in our hearts. Even when that truth exposes us and leaves us vulnerable because God has already seen whatever it is we fear might be brought to light. He knows every intention of our hearts even better than we do, church. And rather than just condemning us for them, he has sent us his son with salvation from Zion. And so let's ask this same God by faith in that son to help us speak truth in our own hearts. Next, Lord, help us to be marked by merciful speech. Merciful speech. So that we will, 
in the words of Psalm 15, not slander with our tongue or take up a reproach against our friend. In both cases, notice here, we are being discouraged from using words to punish, to intimidate, to humiliate, and to scold others. We're encouraged not to use words to heap all kinds of spiritual weight and burdens on others. This is something a person who dwells with God should rarely ever do. And when we do have to speak with strong words, we should do it very awkwardly, very unnaturally, as if it doesn't just kind of roll off the tongue. Instead, this kind of merciful speech is kind, it's gracious. Uh, It leaves room for the faults and flaws of others. It doesn't just come down on others, it gives the benefit of the doubt, and by far, this kind of speech most often has good and uplifting things to say about others. It does not constantly have a bunch of complaints to air and grievances to express. This is it's very unintuitive, especially these days. I feel it getting less intuitive by the year, almost. Uh, but according to this psalm, you will not meet a wise and godly person who is constantly offended, constantly hurt, constantly disappointed, exposing everyone else's sin. You just have to say that is not how immovable people who sojourn in the tent of God tend to live. Uh, you, You might say this is how fools who say in their heart there is no God tend to live. Please hear me. If this is our default way of life, most of the time, if we are usually hurt, usually disappointed, usually at odds with someone in this church, outside of this, or any setting, I'm not trying to invalidate that hurt at all. That's a totally separate issue. This is also important to say, that is just not the kind of life that pleases the Lord. If we continually live in this state of offendedness, and reproach of others, we may not be living the kind of life that pleases the Lord. Godly lives that please the Lord are marked by merciful speech. Now, good, how do we live that way? By faith in Christ and not by our own strength. First, um, I think it's kind of simple. We don't just change our vocabulary. Uh, We don't just paste a smile on and say nicer things while we're writhing inside in fury, right? (laughs) That's not going to work. Instead, we have to consider the profound mercy, the undeserved mercy that God has shown us in his son, Jesus Christ. Then with humble hearts, receiving and clinging to that mercy with all that we have, We open our mouths and we speak it to others. We we open our hearts and we offer it to others. Hear me. We will never be marked by this kind of merciful speech until we are convinced of our need for mercy. Lord, help us be marked by mercy and by merciful speech. Next, Lord, help us be marked by moral clarity as well. Moral clarity. 
David speaks to this in both a negative sense. He says vile people should be despised in our eyes. And also in a positive sense, we should honor those who fear the Lord. Here in view, both cases is our ability to see what is good and call it good, see what is evil and call it evil. And so let's just consider who are we inclined to despise? Who are we inclined to honor? And more importantly, why is that? In particular, do we tend to despise and honor people based on how they view and relate to us? Uh, If they benefit us in some way, we'll honor them. If they ask things of us or upset us in some way, we'll despise them. You can see how this would have a way of creating moral confusion because all of a sudden we're not really after what is good and what is right by God's standard. Now we are after just figuring out what's good and right for us. We see this all the time these days. Uh, For instance, uh, we may treat people who openly reject God's word and even sort of joyfully redefine his purpose for gender, for marriage, and for sexuality, for instance, as if these are just really great, nice people. We should all just honor them. There's no caution or correction that's needed there. And if we even think to say anything like that, that's just mean. Meanwhile, we despise our brothers and sisters who fear the Lord enough to say as mercifully as possible, no, I don't think that's right. Uh, This really matters, and this is an issue of sin. The result? Moral confusion. It's no longer clear when when we should despise and when we should honor, and for what reasons. We have moral chaos. Another example, uh, we might treat openly vile political leaders with a clearly demonstrated pattern of foolishness and sin as if, oh, they're really just good but, you know, imperfect people who we should all honor. Meanwhile, we despise other brothers and sisters who fear the Lord enough to say, you know, no. (laughs) Actually, that is a compromise. It's a serious compromise, and we should really think twice before we do that. The result in this case can also be just a different kind of moral confusion. But I want you to see that this is not the case with those who truly know the Lord, who dwell in his tent. They're marked by moral clarity both when it serves them and when it does not serve them. But how do we pursue that moral clarity? Again, by faith in Christ and not by our own strength. It's a very pressing question, particularly these days. I think the answer is, again, with humility, of course. Uh, recognizing that, again, while moral clarity and justice are issues that demand our attention, they're incredibly urgent, we do live in a fallen world. We cannot expect everyone to just listen and respect our calls for moral clarity. They often won't. And thankfully, the weight of these things does not rest on us. Certainly, we're not free to do this, ignoring the last point, (laughs) On merciful speech, our, moral, our morality does not become more clear as we become more abrasive. So we should do this instead knowing that all the weight of our immorality was placed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. He has looked our depravity in the eye. He's tossed it with all its weight upon his shoulders and he has nailed it to his cross and risen victoriously over every moral ill. And he has done this, church, so that we can be marked 
by both moral clarity and humility. He's done this so that we can be marked by both moral clarity and patience for those who don't know the Lord. Moral clarity and grace and all the rest of them, right? Next, Lord, help us to be marked by commitment. Number five. This is one of my favorites. David is calling us to swear to our own hurt and do not change. I've been processing this with a few members over the course of the week, and some of them have said, uh, what does that mean? It is kind of a strange way to word it, but of course, to swear is to make an oath or a covenant of some sort. It's basically to make a binding spiritual commitment either to God or to someone else. And the idea is that, well, of course, anyone is probably going to be willing to do that. We'll all swear when there's some sort of clear benefit in view for us as a result of swearing. That's not hard, right? Uh, For example, who would like a low-interest mortgage on a beautiful and reasonably priced home right now? Yep, like, we're all there. 3% interest, sounds great. Tell me where to sign. But will you keep paying that mortgage when the bottom falls out? When the price of the house is plummet, and in order to pay it, you'll have to make all kinds of sacrifices you would rather not make. Do you see what... You see what David's saying here? It's one thing to swear. It's not really hard to swear. It's another thing entirely to swear to your own hurt and then not change. The more life I live, the more of this book I read, the more convinced I am and have become that commitment, commitment is one of the most essential and often missing ingredients in modern life. I'm just convinced this is a huge problem because keeping a commitment is one of the most important tools God uses to sanctify all of us. God, our God, is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and if we want to be like him in any measure, we need to make and keep commitments too. Often it is when we are stretched, sometimes even hurt by our commitments, that God reveals our sinfulness and our inadequacy to us and then carries us through on his shoulders. This is so vital to gaining spiritual maturity. If we're always running from commitments, frankly, we, we just never will. Meanwhile, virtually everything about modern life is designed to help us avoid this antiquated spiritual idea that you know commitments are good, they should be made and kept, If you want to enjoy all the benefits of marriage without actually committing to the person you love, no problem. People do it all the time. If you're just kind of done with your marriage and you just can't bring yourself to go on, no problem. There's no fault divorce for that. Uh, If your job's not going great, don't worry. Just kind of coast until something better comes along. Everybody will understand. More and more, people don't really join churches at all. That seems kind of old school and yucky to us. So instead, we attend churches until someone hurts us or frustrates us or annoys us or asks something of us. We'd rather not have them ask of us. Then we leave, often silently, and it's really not all that hard to do it because we never told anyone we would stay. The message is very clear today. As soon as our commitments hurt, change them. Change them. Some of you may need to hear this in particular, particularly those of us who are younger, in our 30s 
and under, I want to say to us, swear to something. Swear to something. Make a commitment that matters. Look someone else in the eyes. Tell them, listen, I'm with you in this. You and me, we're together. And then listen, don't leave their side, even when it gets really, really hard. Even when it means you get hurt, don't leave. Uh, I, I've seen this, by God's grace, in, in my parents' life, actually, in their marriage. Um, they've been through and endured some difficult, difficult stuff. And they're still in it. We're going to go to India. Our life's totally going to be unsettled. They're going to show up at the front door. Hey, how are the kids doing, right? They're there. And I've seen what they've gone through to be there. Church, this is some of the best stuff in life. Some of you are older and you have made these commitments long ago, but now, 20 years in, 30 years in, or more, it's really starting to hurt in ways that maybe it didn't even hurt early on. Don't change. Don't change. Of course, listen, Christ himself is the perfect example of this kind of commitment. I want us to picture him hanging there, beaten, and bloody, picture him following through on the most solemn commitment there could ever possibly be, picture him swearing to his own agony and not changing, not coming down from that cross, but enduring for the joy that is set before him. Church, let's look to this cross. Let's look to this Christ and let's live lives of commitment. And finally, Lord, help us be marked by contentment. Contentment. Uh, this one is a little bit harder to see maybe on the surface. I'm referring to David's words here about money. Uh, in particular, we should not put out our money at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. Now again, in both cases, we're being encouraged not to handle money in a way that benefits us at the expense of someone else. And so really, uh, this is about avoiding greed more than anything else. But of course, the thing that fuels our greed is some form of discontent. We're just never satisfied with what we have. We always need more and bigger and better to the extent that we're willing to hurt or climb on other people, over other people, to get it. There's a phrase in one of the pastoral epistles, it's in Paul's letter to Timothy, that has really struck me and, and put a real check on my own personal uh, ministry, often ambitions. It's kind of become a mantra for me. Paul says, very simply, in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, if you want great gain, it, it may seem tempting to go do more, to go work harder and go get it. It, it might even be tempting to compromise in some way, to take advantage of others maybe here or there, but if you want to great gain, we all know in, in the eyes of this world, the one thing you can never be is content. Never settle, right? 
It sounds great for like six months and then most people burn out or have a moral failure. They certainly don't dwell in God's tent. It's just not true. This is not the path to great gain, it's the path to destruction. Instead, godliness with contentment is great gain. And I, know, I want you to notice, it doesn't say that it leads to great gain. We shouldn't live this way because of all the benefits we're gonna get someday if we just wait. No, no. Living a godly, content life in this way is the benefit. We experience it right away. And of course, the key to living a life of contentment by faith and not by our strength is to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in Christ himself and not in the things of this world. As Paul says, we need to do this by crucifying our life in the flesh, by counting everything we once gained as loss compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. If he is our greatest treasure, we can always be content. Now, I want to make sure you guys have been listening. So, we'll do a little call and response here. Okay, I have some questions for you. Uh, can we just go and live this way on our own? Answer? No. no. Good. But can we actually live this way as Christians? Answer? Yes. You're very good. And does it really matter that we do live in this way? Yes. And how is it? that we should go about living in this way. We should do it by Praise. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, help us to live in this way as we cling to the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Welcome us by that faith into your tent. Let us sit secure atop your holy hill and make our lives and our church, God, immovable as a result, that the winds of this world would never shake us, that your glory would shine through us, through our lives, even through our families for many, many generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.